Let's start off with a word of prayer. Father, we come to you this morning as people with probably many things on our mind. You've uh, placed each all in different circumstances, different family uh, issues, different life circumstances with jobs, with um, many different things that can distract us this morning. And Lord, I just pray that as we have these brief moments to look at your word, that you would open our eyes, that you would calm our hearts, calm our minds, and open our eyes to see you. Because as we just sang, you are the focus. You are the one that we should be looking at when we read the scripture. And Lord, I just pray that we would see you in all your glory this morning as you reveal yourself to us, as we see you revealed yourself to those who are around. Meet with us this morning, Lord. I pray that you would do a work in our hearts that that I cannot, that others in the audience cannot do, Lord, that their Holy Spirit would do it, that he would change us to become more like your son, not so that we can look at ourselves and see the great progress we've made and get proud, but so that when we stand before you, you'll be able to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's our goal, Father. I pray that we would accomplish that in the days ahead as we look at your word, as we apply it to our lives. Meet with us this morning, Lord, and empower your word as it goes forth. Don't let it be my words, but let it be your word that speaks. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I'm already hoarse. <laughs> um, <clears throat> turning your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5. I'm not kidding. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to skip John this morning. No, I'm just kidding. That, I am kidding about that. Deuteronomy chapter 5, I want to look at something <clears throat> as we get into this passage this morning. Um, can anybody quote John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 yet? We're, getting, we're probably getting close because we keep bringing it up. You know, and and it's, it's interesting, you know, we didn't sit around in an elders meeting going, hey, let's remember, every time we preach, bring up John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, right? That wasn't, that wasn't planned. <laughs> but, but as we look at the scripture and as we think about the passage that we're studying, we're, we're studying John, um, we need to keep in mind the fact that John had a purpose, right? And I know we keep hearing this, but it's a good reminder every week as we come to John, why are we looking at John? Why are we looking at this passage? Because as we remember this, it focuses our mind to avoid focusing on things that are irrelevant. And this morning, there's, there's part of this passage that <clears throat> honestly is, is not irrelevant, but it's much less important than a lot of people make of it. And it's found in the first few, few verses of chapter 5, verses 1 through, we're going through 18. Okay? So in the first few verses, we have this uh, miracle that Jesus didn't do. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? There's a miracle in this chapter. Okay, flip over to chapter 5. John, take a look. I'll give you 30 seconds. What's the miracle? Anybody remember? Nobody? Right. We're at the pool of Bethesda, right? Does that ring any bells? Okay. What happened at the pool of Bethesda? Right. People were waiting for when the water was stirred because what would happen? They would be healed, right? All of them? Just one, right? The first one in. Okay, so we have this miracle that Jesus didn't perform at the beginning of chapter 5. And this is something, you know, we've even had some, you know, discussions here <laughs> in our midst about this uh, before in Sunday schools, I think. 
Um, but this is why it's important that we understand John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Right? And what does it say again? It says, these things are, well, sorry, many other miracles that Jesus did in the eyes of, or the sight of, I forgot it. Amongst the disciples, basically, I'm going to paraphrase. <laughs> Jesus did lots of other miracles uh, around the disciples, right? But these are written, why? So that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, right? That miracle doesn't really help us believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, right? Why is it there? It's there to give us context. It's there to help us understand why things were the way they were. And we're going to get to that in a few minutes. But I, I want you to understand, um, you know, there's things in Scripture that people oftentimes major on. I mean, there are people who have spent hours and hours and hours trying to figure out, okay, this version says there was an angel that came down. This version doesn't say anything about an angel. You know, which one was it? Was there an angel or not? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because that's not the point of the passage. Right? What's the point of the passage? These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God. Jesus didn't, well, I shouldn't say he didn't have anything to do with it, but <laughs> Jesus was not using the, the water in the pool to heal anybody at that time. Right? That's not part of the miracle that Christ is going to do. So that's why we remind you guys every week, and I assume we're going to keep doing it. <laughs> I don't know. That's why I'm doing it this week. Because it's important to keep our focus on why John wrote the book. Because when we keep our focus on why John wrote the book, it helps us avoid majoring on things that we shouldn't major on. It helps us focus on, really, the subject of the book, which is who? Christ, right? Anybody tired? (laughs) I'm a little tired. It's all right. You can speak louder. I'm a little deaf, too, so you have to. (laughs) All right, so back to Deuteronomy. (laughs) Why are we in Deuteronomy? I want to read through Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in verse 12. And, uh, and we'll kind of connect this a little bit later on. But this is talking about really kind of the main point, or, or one, of, one of the main points of this passage in John. Okay? Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in verse 12. says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any other livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Okay, we're going to get to this in a minute. But I want you to remember why it is we have the Sabbath, or the Jews had the Sabbath, right? Why did the Jews keep the Sabbath? Why was it so important? Okay, we have this command here in Deuteronomy 5. This isn't the only place where they're told to keep the Sabbath. Obviously, this is kind of a rehearsal of the Ten Commandments. So back in Exodus chapter 20, we have it as well, you know, when the Ten Commandments were given. So this is just kind of expounding on that a little bit more. And, and it's interesting, you know, it, it goes into pretty good detail, does it not? You know, you're not supposed to work. Your, your sons and your daughters are not supposed to work. Um, your servants are not supposed to work. You know, there's, it, it goes pretty deep, right? Why? What was the purpose given in Deuteronomy? To keep it holy, right? But what were they, what, why did God institute this? To rest and remember. Remember what? 
What? They were slaves in Egypt and God delivered them. Right? Okay, so there's a purpose for the Sabbath. You know, it's not just a, a time to be kicked back and, you know, relax and be like, all right, football. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Um, that, that's one nice thing about doing the service early. You don't have to blame me for missing football. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but I've only got 30 minutes, so we're in trouble. <clears throat> so the, the Sabbath was there for a purpose, right? It was there not just to, to have a day of rest, but it was there to remember what God had done for Israel. Now, I want you to keep that in your mind as we go now back to John chapter 5. Okay? John chapter 5. Flip over. I took my marker out, so I lost it. Excuse me. John chapter 5. We're going to read through the first few verses just to get the context here. All right, it says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in the Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time and said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. As we look at this passage this morning, obviously there's more verses we're going to get into. um, But as we look at this passage this morning, I want to, I want to look at four revealing things about Christ, four ways that Christ revealed who he is. All right, And the first one, I just want to take a look first before we get into that, though, and see where we're at. Okay, we know that it's the Sabbath day. You know, that's coming up. There's going to be a revelation through that, right? But we know that it's the Sabbath day. We just reminded ourselves what the Sabbath was for. Um, but but what, is, what is with this pool? And it's interesting, the words that are used here, okay? Set the scene in your mind. We have this pool of Bethesda. We don't know necessarily how big the pool was. Um, but the area was fairly large, all right, because it said, how, how many colonnades did it have? Five. I just gave it to you, see? Five. Good job. <laughs> there were five colonnades, and, uh, and they were roofed colonnades, okay? So if you just think about that, if you've ever gone back, do, do, go, do a Google search after the service and uh, look up, you know, roofed colonnades in the Roman times. They were fairly large structures, right? So if you think about where this was, this was probably a fairly large area. And it was large enough to hold what the Bible describes as multitudes, right? It's saying there are lots of people here. So Jesus is up in Jerusalem. He's there for uh, a feast. And as he's there, he goes to this pool of Bethesda. Now, why were these people at the pool? To be healed, right? They all had something that was wrong with them. Okay, they all needed something that Jesus had been doing already, right? Jesus had been Jesus had been healing people all over Galilee and Jerusalem. He had been doing these miracles, and and here he comes to a place. Really, I mean, if you're going to go to a place that that really needs what Jesus has been doing, Bethesda was the place because they were all gathered there. 
They were all sitting under these, these uh, you know, roofed colonnades and probably outside of them, we don't know. But there were a lot of people there. They were waiting to be healed and they were desiring to be healed. They, they were there for a purpose. They were there because they knew, hey, if I can get down in that water when it, when it does whatever it did, <laughs> then, and I'm the first one, I'm going to be healed. So they, they were there to be healed. They needed to be healed. They were there to be healed. And they desired to be healed. They were there exactly in, in kind of the, the mode that Jesus usually looked for, right? You look at all the miracles that Jesus did, and that, you know, he's constantly healing people that are coming to him with these ailments. And it's just interesting, with all these people here, how many does he heal? One. And you think, that doesn't really sound like Jesus. I mean, we read about him being out preaching and teaching, and he's healing multitudes, and they're all coming to him. And, you know, and it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of abnormal from what we usually see of Christ. You know, we see oftentimes that Christ is healing and teaching and preaching till late in the evening. You know, and, and often then goes and prays. And you look at that and you compare that to this and you go, wow, here he is right smack dab in the middle of a multitude of people who need exactly what he can offer. And he chooses one. Now, why did he choose this guy? My kids are raising their hand. That's, that's not good. Because <laughs> we don't know. Right? Yeah. That's, he's like that. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. All right. Possibly his faith, yeah. And we'll get to that in a minute. But yeah, we don't know exactly why Christ chose this guy. You know, they all had some faith because they were believing that they were, could get healed. That's why they were there. But you look at this guy. He's been lying here for how long? 38 years. Now, I don't necessarily know that he was right there for 38 years, but he had been lame for 38 years. I'm 36 so he was lame longer than I have been alive. I can't imagine that. I cannot imagine living my whole life without being able to walk. And yet this man, we don't know how old he was. We don't know if this was from birth or if it had happened you know, at some point in his life. We don't have a lot, whole lot of details about this guy. And in fact, we don't have a whole lot of details about most people that Jesus <laughs> interacts with because they're not the point, Right? So here's this man. He's been lying here for 38 years. He can't walk. He's an invalid. He's lame. And Jesus comes up to him and asks him somewhat of a, you know, duh question, right? What does he ask him? Do you want to be healed? (laughs) Can you imagine being one of the disciples and being like, uh, you know, that's why all these guys are here, right? (laughs) I mean... You've been here before. He's probably, Jesus has probably been there before. You know, he's 30 years old. He's been to Jerusalem many times. Probably knew about the pool of Bethesda. Obviously, he's God, so he knows why they're there. You know, kind of a, kind of a crazy question to ask a guy. Do you want to be healed? All right? And, and this man, you know, he's, he's thinking about what's, what's currently going on in his life. He's thinking about the only way he knows how to be healed very possible this guy never even heard of Jesus, especially if he's been at the pool of Bethesda day in and day out. You know, he, he may not even have heard Jesus' name or about Jesus or anything. He certainly hadn't met him. We're going to see that a little bit later on. And so here's this man, and Jesus comes up to him and kind of asks him a, a no-brainer question, You're kind of a softball, hey, do you want to be healed? And what does he say? Yeah, absolutely, that's why I'm here. I just can't get in the pool. 
You know, I, I, every time I go to, to try to drag myself into the pool, somebody steps down before me. And he, so he comes to this man who is really, you know, if you look at that, I, I kind of get a sense of desperate hopelessness. Because here's this guy, he, he obviously knows that where he's at is opportunity to be healed. Right? He has that little bit of hope. There's, there's, a, there's a possibility that I could be healed. And we don't know how long he was there, but he's probably been there quite some time. And he's like, and he's like, and I've tried everything I can do to get myself into the pool. But I just am not quick enough. I just can't do it on my own. And so you kind of see this hint of desperation, of hopelessness in his, in his response when he says, I don't have anybody to put me in the pool. That's why I'm here. I'm here at the pool to get healed, but I don't have anybody to put me in. I can't do it on my own. And so Jesus begins to reveal to this man who he is. And he does that, first of all, by a revealing command. A revealing command. What did he say to this man? Get up and walk. Right? He said, let's look down to get the exact words. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. All right? Pretty simple command. Now, is that a simple command to somebody who has been laying around with atrophy for 38 years? No, it's not. Um, I've had friends that have been in wheelchairs for just a few years, and even after just a few years, their legs are like skin and bones almost. You know, there's no muscle, there's no strength. Um, even with physical therapy, a lot of times you can't, you just can't keep it up. When you can't use it, it's a common saying, you lose it, right? And for 38 years, this guy has had the inability to walk. And Jesus has the audacity to say to him, get up, not just get up, but do what? Pick up your bed, okay? Yeah, and we don't know what he was laying on. We don't know if it was like a couch or if it was like some, roll-up sleeping bag type thing. We don't know. But, you know, obviously it would have required some, some work, some agility, some ability, right? And he says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Now, any medical professional can tell you that doesn't happen like that. <laughs> that doesn't happen in a moment. For a man who has been lame for 38 years to, A, have the muscle and structural stability to stand up let alone have the balance to bend over, pick something up with the strength to pick something up, and then walk when he hasn't done it for 38 years. How often do we really think about the miracles that Jesus does? They are amazing. They are miraculous. That's why they're miracles. You know, is it any wonder why people were following him in droves, why they were coming after while they were bringing the sick to him. Is it any wonder why they were doing that when he could do something like this? When he could take a man who had no strength, no muscle, and tell him to get up, pick up his bed and walk, and the man did it. When? When did it say he did it? Immediately, right? Well, technically it says he was healed immediately. But (laughs) but yeah, then he he gets up and and he... does what Jesus said. Can you imagine what's going on in this guy's mind? Okay, this guy just told me to get up. Somehow, I imagine he had some feeling <laughs> in his body that he was able to do this. There's no argument. There's no like, are you kidding me? 
you, you know, you realize I've been here for, you know, I've been like this for 38 years. I mean, really? You're going to tell me to get up? I mean, that's really cruel. You know, he doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't talk back to him. He doesn't, you know, give him a hard time. He doesn't complain. He doesn't, there's nothing. There's no dialogue other than Jesus saying, get up, take up your bed and walk. And he does it. That's a miracle. And that's something that no doctor, no nutritionist, no physical therapist, no one can do except God. God is the only one who can in an instant turn some circumstance like that completely around. God is the only one who can in an instant take our body and take it from invalid to able. He's the only one that can do that. And in this simple command of get up, take up your bed and walk, Christ has revealed to this man that he's more than just some teacher. He's more than just some uh, maybe really good physician. You know, he is, he is someone that has the power and the ability of doing things that only God can do. So Jesus reveals himself through this command. We keep reading on. In verse... Uh, <clears throat> End of verse 9. I'll just read verse 9. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Remember the special day set apart. We just read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. All right? So not only do we have revelation through a command, but now we have a revealing or revelation through controversy. Revelation through controversy. What was the controversy? Working on the Sabbath, right? He was doing labor on the Sabbath. Now, do you think that's what God intended when he gave the Sabbath? <clears throat> Did he intend for this man not to carry his baby? We don't really know. It just says, do no work, do no labor, in other passages, right? So this leaves it kind of open to interpretation for the Jews to some degree. And especially the, the, the zealous Jews, they're going to take it to the extreme, right? I mean, they, <laughs> there were some really good extremists in the Jewish culture. They took everything to the extreme. Um, but, but this is one of the things that they really took the extreme, to the extreme. I mean, they did nothing on the Sabbath. They did, they did nothing. I mean, and if, if you, you know, went and did some very small, normal, everyday thing, they might get on to you. And so here are these Jews, they're looking at this guy, and he's, I don't know, maybe he's walking down the street. We don't know if he's still under, if he's still by the pool or if he's, you know, halfway home. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I kind of, in my mind, I I envision him, you know, walking down the street with his bed, you know, just probably enjoying the fact that I'm walking, you know. He's probably on cloud nine, and all of a sudden, he has this controversy, right? And and the Jews come up to him and say, why are you working? Why are you doing this? You're breaking the Sabbath. What's wrong with you? And what does he say? What's his rebuttal? Yeah, the man who healed me told me to do this. 
Now, was he unaware of what the Sabbath was? No, he seems to understand what the Sabbath is. You know, he probably knew that it was the Sabbath, but the man who healed me told me to do this. See, this man, through the miracle that Christ gave, through the revelation of his command of get up, take up your bed and walk, through the miracle of healing his body in a way that only God can do, this man recognized, hey, that guy who I don't even know his name, he's got power that only comes from God. Because of that, he has authority to tell me to do something on the Sabbath that maybe I wouldn't normally do. See, through this controversy, we see that this man understood that Jesus not only had power to heal, but he had authority. Even authority over man's traditions of the law. Now, the Sabbath was the law, right? It's in the Ten Commandments. So the Sabbath was the law. But man's traditions often took the law a step further. And, and these guys, again, you know, we look at, we look at this, the phrasing in, in, in Deuteronomy 5, you know, and it says that all these different people are not supposed to work so that we can remember what, what, G, what God did for the Israelites and bringing them out of Egypt, right? That was the purpose for the Sabbath. And yet the, the Jews would take that further. And they would, they would focus on the external. They would focus on the, the not doing anything. And oftentimes, I think, forget about the remembering why we have the Sabbath. They were caught up in the ritualistic part of it and observing the letter of the law that they missed the spirit of the law. They missed the purpose. And Jesus here reveals to this man not only that he's God through his power over the human body and healing, but he reveals to him that he's God by giving him authority to tell him to go against man's tradition of the law. He says, take up your bed and walk. And here is this man who's never even met Jesus, doesn't know who he is. And it says that Jesus actually went away because of the crowds. And because I can just see this guy, you know, he's standing there talking to these people. And he says, well, you know, the guy who, the guy who healed me, wherever he went, he, he, he's the one that told me to do this. Right? And so the Jews are just kind of baffled. They're like, well, what do we do now? <laughs> Obviously, somebody told him to do it. We don't know who it is, so it seems like they just kind of let him go. But that controversy showed that this man understood that Jesus not only was a healer, but he had authority. There's a third revelation. Let's continue reading. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, this is a really small, brief interaction, and one that we may tend to gloss over, but I want to take some time and stop here, because I think this is important. Jesus not only revealed through his command and revealed through the controversy, but Jesus revealed to this man that he was more than just a healer. He was more than just someone with authority, that he was someone who demanded holiness. He does this by revealing through a call, a revealing call. What's his call to this man? What? Sin no more. If I remember correctly, this is the first time he said that to someone after healing them. But this is going to happen more and more. Jesus comes to this man in a private setting, a one-on-one. He comes to this man in a religious area. Where were they? 
Did you catch it? The temple, right? He comes to this man at the temple, and he comes to him personally. You know, not he wasn't talking to the crowds. You know, he came to this man, he's talking to him personally. He says, look, you're healed. And, and I can just imagine the guy's probably <laughs> there praising the Lord that he was healed. I, I don't know why he was there. Maybe he was there for a traditional time. But, uh, but he was there at the temple. He's obviously going to be happy. He's obviously going to be thankful for what God has done in his life, what Jesus has done to heal him. And Jesus comes up to him and he says, look, you've been healed. Now, go and sin no more. I've healed you, and because of that, I want you to live a life that is holy. See, Jesus revealed that he's more than just a miracle worker. He's more than just an earthly figure with authority. He is God because he demands holiness. And we should not skip that verse when we look at this. Jesus was not just concerned about the physical health of the people that he healed. He was concerned about the spiritual he was concerned that they understood who he was, not just as a healer, not just as a man with authority, but as the Son of God, as God himself, as one who demands holiness, as one who desires for that relationship to ultimately be healed as he's going to do in the future on the cross. And he desires this man to go and walk in a way that is holy. He says, sin no more. And it's not just a, it's not just a, you know, glib statement from a, from a rabbi, go and sin no more, my son, right? No, he gives him a warning, right? He says, sin no more, why? Right? So that nothing worse happens to you. Now, we don't know why this guy was lame. We don't know if he had sinned and God made him lame because of that before. We don't know. We don't know if he was lame from birth. Um, but, you know, there's, there's, there's not a whole lot more that's worse than being lame for 38 years. To, to be completely, I mean, maybe, maybe completely paralyzed, you know. But you imagine it's going through this guy's mind. Jesus is saying, go and sin no more, or you might have it worse than you had it on before. That's a pretty stark uh, challenge, is it not? So Jesus reveals to this man who he is, not just through a command, of healing, not just through this controversy showing his authority, and not just through this call to holiness, but he reveals himself really full circle and completely in the next few verses. Let's look at that. Verse 15, the man went and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Keep note of that word, okay? They were doing what? They were persecuting him, okay? They were persecuting him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse 17, but Jesus answered, my father is working until now, and I am working. We look at that and we say, yeah, okay. Because we know Jesus as the Son of God, right? So for him to make this statement, my father is working, and I am working until now, uh, you know, My father's working until now, and I am working. That's like, okay, no-brainer to us. But look at how the Jews reacted, okay? In verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to persecute him, to kill him. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, when the Jews heard him say, 
my father is working until now and I am working. They knew exactly what he was saying. There was no misconception of the son of God. Well, he's, he's not God because he's just the son of God. They knew exactly what he was saying. They knew exactly what he meant. And that was, I am God. And it went from simply persecuting this man, giving him a hard time, making his life rough because he's doing these miracles, these good things on the Sabbath. And all of a sudden, when he says that, it turns completely around from persecution, from we're going to make this guy's life hard to this guy needs to die. And his revelation comes full circle. It's not just revelation of him as a healer. It's not just revelation of him as a man with authority. It's not just revelation of him as somebody who desires holiness, who requires holiness. But he flat out says, I am God. And he lays it out there for them. Why would he do that? From this point on, Jesus has set in motion the events that are going to happen at the end of the book of John. Jesus has begun to lay the groundwork in the hearts of the Jews, and the hearts of the, the religious leaders, as they heard these words, my father is working until now and I am working. As they heard those words and they understood what Jesus was saying, that I am God. And in their minds, they could not accept that a man could say that. No matter how many miracles he did, no matter how many great things he taught, they could not reconcile that. And they chose to hate him, to refuse him, and ultimately to kill him. And it's very clear that was their goal. Right away, from that moment on, they were looking to kill him. And so Jesus, in this revelation to this man of who he is, not just as a miracle worker, not just as a man with authority, not just as a uh, one who desires and requires holiness, but as God himself sets in motion exactly what he came to do, to go to the cross to pay the debt of our sin, to be beaten before an angry mob, to be laid in a tomb and rise again the third day. Why? So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life. Jesus revealed who he was to this man and to the people around him. And ultimately, they rejected him. The question is, what are we doing? Are we rejecting him? Or are we willing to see him for who he has revealed himself to be? God himself in the flesh who came to earth to pay the debt that we couldn't pay. Father, we thank you that as John 3.16 says, you loved us so much, more than we could ever comprehend, that you gave your only son to die on the cross, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, would not spend an eternity in hell, apart from you and anguish and, and torment, but would have life everlasting. Lord, we cannot fathom what eternity will be like. Our finite minds cannot understand it, but I pray that as we believe what you have told us, as we seek to live it out day by day, that you would help us to not only be holy like you've called us to be, but that you would help us to be salt and light to a world around us that, as we said earlier, they they don't know you. They don't know who you are. And, and too often, Lord, they don't see you in us. And I pray that that would change 
as we look further and further into this book, as we understand more and more about you, I pray that we would be changed to be like you so that a world that is lost and dying and going to hell would be saved because of our testimony, because of our actions, because of our word of truth of what you did for them on the cross. That's our desire, Lord. And I pray that as we grow individually, as we grow as a church, in our knowledge and our understanding and our obedience of your word, that that would take place and that we would see miracles of new lives, even amongst our, our own people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.